When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As long as humans have been on Earth, people have had an innate desire to travel to the unknown regions and explore. From early man during the Ice Age 12,000 years ago crossing the frozen tundra into new lands that were once inaccessible, to ancient mariners sailing off toward the horizon in search of treasure and new wonders, to those intrepid dreamers who stared up at the stars and wondered, what if? There have always been those who stared off into the distance and wanted to learn what was just over that next horizon. Sergei Korolev was one of those dreamers. He was born in the Ukraine in 1907, just a few years after the Wright brothers achieved the first manned airplane flight. By age 17, Korolev built his own glider. From there, he went on to be educated at the Kiev Polytechnic University and the University of Moscow where he began working on early rocket propulsion and would eventually over time become known as the father of the Soviet space program. But Korolev's path to such an esteemed position wasn't easy. If you study enough history, you'll come to realize there are certain irrefutable facts. One of these facts is that you really, really didn't want to get on Joseph Stalin's bad side. After Vladimir Lenin, head of the Bolshevik party, died in 1924, Stalin quickly rose to power, declaring himself supreme dictator in 1929. But as Stalin consolidated his power, he came to believe that anyone with ties to the Bolsheviks or Lenin's government was a threat that needed to go. Thus began the Great Purge, a brutal eradication campaign that began in 1937, where it's estimated Stalin had at least 750,000 people executed. Not only that, but Stalin also sent more than a million people to forced labor camps known as gulags. This included Sergei Korolev. Unlike a lot of other political prisoners, though, Korolev was still considered to be valuable enough that he was allowed to continue working on developing rocket engines while in captivity. He was soon recognized by a famous aircraft designer named Sergei Tupolev, who was heading Stalin's rocket program from inside the gulag. Tupolev added Korolev to his team of scientists and engineers. And as time went on, Korolev would become more and more instrumental in developing Soviet rocket technology. At the end of World War II, Korolev was sent to Germany to inspect what was left of the Nazi rocket program. By that point, the United States had already gathered up many of Germany's best rocket scientists and whisked them off to America in a top-secret program known as Operation Paperclip. In 1942, Germany launched the first successful ballistic missile, a weapon known as the V-2. After the war, Korolev was put in charge of designing the Russian equivalent of the German rocket. This would lead to the creation of the first intercontinental ballistic missile, known as the R-7. But Korolev's work didn't just stop at designing Soviet weapons. 
The Soviet Union had their own group of captured German rocket scientists they put to work on their own space program. In 1957, the Soviets shocked the world when it launched the Sputnik 1, a metallic beach ball-sized object that was the first human-made satellite ever launched into orbit. This news, of course, caused the U.S. military to completely freak out. And from there, the space race was on. The space race was often a game of one-upmanship. At its core was the race to see who could be first to strap a human being into a metal rocket and launch them into space. On April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union scored the first big win when they announced to the world that cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin had become the first man to successfully orbit the Earth. But is that the whole story? On November 28, 1960, two Italian brothers named Achille and Giovanni Giudica Cordiglia claimed to have spent hours listening to static on their amateur radio equipment before picking up a faint signal sent by a Soviet cosmonaut in space. It was a familiar signal that's among the first things anyone versed in Morse code learns. Three dots, followed by three dashes, followed by three more dots. S-O-S. For decades, there have long been rumors that Yuri Gagarin may not have been the first Soviet cosmonaut to have been sent into space. And that in their rush to beat the U.S., the Soviet Union may have covered up several tragic accidents. Erasing the identities of these lost cosmonauts from history. I'm Nate Hale, transmitting to you live from my secret podcasting booth on the ninth planet Nibiru. And this is The Conspirators. Beginning in the 1940s, the Soviet Union began establishing dozens of closed cities that were quite literally left off the map in order to prevent prying eyes from learning about them. One of these secret cities was established in 1960 and was officially designated as Military Unit 26266, Closed Townlet Number 1. Today it's better known as Star City, and it's the place where the original group of Soviet cosmonauts lived and trained. Now, of course, U.S. intelligence back then knew where Star City was and had a pretty good idea what was going on there. It's pretty difficult to hide what was in fact a fully functioning city, complete with schools, a post office, train stations, movie theaters, and museums. Even today, Star City has a population of about 6,300 people. During the 1950s, over 3,000 members of the Soviet Air Force applied for the cosmonaut training program. Of those, 102 made the second round of cuts. After a series of rigorous mental and physical screenings, this number was further whittled down to just 20 men, who became known as Air Force Group 1. Most of these men were young, under 30 years old, which was different from the American space program who tended to choose older, more experienced pilots. Of these 20 original cosmonauts, the official record states that 12 would actually fly into space, Four were fired after getting into clashes with their superiors. Three were dismissed for medical issues. And then there was what happened to Valentin Bondarenko. Bondarenko was a decorated Soviet Air Force officer who quickly rose through the ranks to become a senior lieutenant. At age 23, he was the youngest member of the original 20 cosmonauts. The older cosmonauts liked Bondarenko and gave him the affectionate nicknames Valentin Jr. and Tinkerbell. 
These men became close during their training. During their off time, they would do things together like ski, hunt, and play hockey. On May 31, 1960, Bondarenko began training in the Vostok program, which was the program that would eventually lead to Yuri Gagarin becoming the first human to orbit the Earth. Along the way, the cosmonauts were put through many rigorous tests to see how a human being would cope with the stresses of being launched into orbit. One of these tests involved something called the Chamber of Silence. This was a bare room with only a metal bed, a chair, and a table. The men were provided with only a few other amenities. This included some books, a pen and paper, some wood for whittling, and a hot plate and saucepan. The Chamber of Silence had thick lead-lined walls and was completely soundproofed, hence the name. In each test session, one of the cosmonauts was placed inside the chamber for a predetermined length of time to see how they would cope with the isolation of space. The men were then completely cut off from the outside world and studied by a number of observing scientists. Valentin Bondarenko was the 17th out of 20 men to enter the Chamber of Silence. But 10 days into his planned 15-day experiment, something went horribly wrong. It happened when Bondarenko was taking off the biosensors attached to his chest using cotton balls soaked in rubbing alcohol. He tossed one of the balls toward the trash without looking, but missed. This alcohol-soaked cotton ball landed on the hot plate, where he was heating some tea. The cotton ball immediately caught fire. This would have been bad enough on its own, but the test chamber also contained an atmosphere that was well over 50% oxygen to mimic the conditions inside the space capsule. This oxygen mixture was considerably higher than the typical atmosphere we all experience in the outside world. And if you know anything about basic combustion, you'll know that a fire loves oxygen. The Chamber of Silence immediately became completely engulfed in flame, at the center of which was Valentin Bondarenko. It took the horrified scientists on the outside nearly a half hour to get the chamber open. By the time they reached Bondarenko, he was somehow still alive. But the man had suffered a fate worse than death. Bondarenko had third-degree burns over nearly his entire body. The only place on Bondarenko's skin that was undamaged enough for doctors to run an IV to administer some pain medication was through the soles of his feet, which had been protected by his boots. Ultimately, there was nothing the doctors could do to save him. He died 16 hours later. Bondarenko was posthumously given the heroic award of the Order of the Red Star. They even named a crater on the moon in his honor. But none of that became public knowledge immediately after his death. You see, rather than admit this tragic mistake, the Soviet government did what they did best and covered the whole thing up. Covering things up and erasing the past was something the Soviets had gotten really good at ever since Stalin's Great Purge. Long before Photoshop ever existed, you can find numerous examples of before and after photos from the Soviet archives, where various Soviet military and political figures who fell out of favor with Stalin were airbrushed out of the picture. This same practice extended to the space program as well. During the 1970s, former NASA scientist and space historian James Oberg discovered multiple published versions of the same group shot of the original Soviet cosmonauts, in each version of which different members of the group were airbrushed out, including Valentin Bondarenko. In fact, the story of what happened to Bondarenko wouldn't become public knowledge until the Glasnost era 
of Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s. But just how far would the Soviet leadership go to hide their mistakes? That's the question at the core of the mystery of the lost cosmonauts. The death of Valentin Bondarenko was certainly tragic. But in many ways, the story of Vladimir Kolmarov was even worse because of how many warnings were made that could have prevented the man's death. It was just three weeks after Valentin Bondarenko died when the Soviets announced that Yuri Gagarin had successfully orbited the Earth. The entire flight was only one orbit long and lasted for 108 minutes from liftoff to landing. But in that moment, Gagarin would officially become the first man to ever successfully fly into space and return. Gagarin's best friend was a fellow cosmonaut named Vladimir Komarov. He was a former fighter pilot and one of the original 20 men to be chosen to be part of Air Force Group 1. At age 32, Komarov was one of the oldest members of the Group of 20, and he was looked on as a mentor by many of the younger cosmonauts. He was an engineer as well as a pilot and was easily one of the most qualified candidates for the program. But, somewhere along the line, Sergei Korolev, the chief designer of the Soviet space program, decided that 27 was the maximum ideal age for a cosmonaut. So Komarov was passed over to be one of the first six space pilots. And after that, he kept getting bumped off the roster again and again. In May 1962, Komarov replaced Georgi Shonin for the Vostok missions when Shonin proved unable to handle the extreme G-forces they encountered in training. But Komarov still didn't get to go into space then. Next, the man was scheduled to be the backup for Pavel Popovich on the Vostok 4 mission. But when a heart irregularity showed up during a routine medical exam, Komarov was once again yanked from the mission roster. But Komarov wasn't giving up in his dream of going into space. He fought hard for his chance to remain in the program, although he kept getting pushed from one mission to the next, never getting his chance to be launched into orbit. After getting bumped from the Vostok 4 mission, he got selected to be a backup for the Vostok 5. Then, in April of 1964, after completing more than two years of training in Star City, as well as many more medical tests of his heart condition, Komarov was officially given the okay for spaceflight. In July 1964, Komarov was chosen to be the commander of the backup group for the Voshkod 1. This was a rocket that was originally designed to carry only one crew member, but the ship was modified to carry three passengers so that it could outshine the U.S. Gemini program. On October 4, 1964, just eight days before the Voshkod 1 was scheduled to launch, Komarov was chosen to be the primary mission commander. The other two members of this flight crew were Boris Yegorov and Konstantin Vyokstatov. Of the three, Komarov was the only man with any real flight experience. Despite this, on October 11th, Komarov and the other members of the Voshkod crew were successfully launched into space. Komarov even sent a message from orbit to the Tokyo Olympics during the mission. He and his two crewmen circled the Earth for 24 hours before returning safely. Afterwards, the men visited Red Square and were hailed as heroes of the Soviet Union. Although their successful mission wasn't really the top news story going on at the time, this just so happened to occur right around the same time that Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev was replaced by Leonid Brezhnev. After returning to Earth, Komarov was promoted to the rank of colonel and awarded the Order of Lenin. Komarov and several other cosmonauts were then taken on a tour of the Soviet Union in West Germany, 
Afterwards, he and his best friend Yuri Gagarin began preparing for the next big space mission, the Voshkod 2, which involved the first successful attempt for a human being to actually leave the spacecraft and float in outer space. The Voshkod program was followed by the Soyuz program in 1967. Three cosmonauts were chosen for the Soyuz program, Komarov, Gagarin, and Alexei Leonov. 1967 also marked the 50th anniversary of the Communist Revolution. So, new party leader Leonid Brezhnev wanted to pull out all the stops to showcase communist superiority that year. With a demonstration of how advanced the Soviet space program was in comparison to the United States. The word Soyuz roughly translates to the word alliance, which also directly relates to the planned demonstration. The plan was for the Soyuz 1 rocket to be launched with Komarov at the controls, while a second ship, the Soyuz 2, would be launched the following day. Then these two rockets would meet up and link together in space, and the pilots would then play a game of musical chairs. Once the capsules were linked together, Komarov would climb into the second ship, trading places with one of the three cosmonauts in the other capsule. Then Komarov and the remaining cosmonauts inside the Soyuz 2 would return to Earth, as would the new pilot of the Soyuz 1. But right from the start, there were problems with this ambitious plan. Everything was being rushed in order to make the planned launch date, which meant a lot of corners were being cut, and a lot of important safety tests weren't being performed. Komarov and Gagarin clashed repeatedly with the administrators of the program about many of the rocket's design flaws. Among other things, they insisted the exit hatch was too small to fit a man wearing a full spacesuit. Komarov had always been strong-willed, but when he began to openly argue with his superiors, it really got him into some hot water. Things grew even worse when during a tour of Japan in 1966, Komarov blurted out a secret Soviet plan to fly an automated spacecraft around the moon and return to Earth. As the launch window grew near, Komarov and Gagarin both kept pointing out everything that was wrong with the Soyuz 1. Gagarin wrote a letter to the Soviet leadership detailing his and Komarov's concerns. The two men figured since Gagarin was the bigger national hero, he was less likely to get in trouble. Gagarin tried giving the letter to a KGB agent, Benjamin Rusayev, and asked him to pass it up the chain of command. But anyone who read the letter refused to act on it for fear of what might happen if they too caused trouble. Despite Komarov and Gagarin's many warnings, the Soyuz mission remained on schedule. Years later, after moving to the United States, one of the former Soyuz project engineers wrote a memoir in which he said that everyone involved in the Soyuz rocket was full of bugs. But because it was ordained by the Soviet government, there was to be no delay in making the launch happen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A month before the Soyuz launch, Komarov reportedly broke down crying to Rusayev, telling him he knew he was never coming back alive from this mission. When Rusayev asked him why he didn't just refuse to fly, Komarov tearfully told him that if he didn't make this flight, they'd send his best friend Yuri Gagarin in his place, and he wasn't going to let them send his best friend to his death. 
According to one report, Gargarin showed up on the day of the launch and demanded that he be allowed to take Komarov's place. But that didn't happen. So on April 23, 1967, Vladimir Komarov's fate was sealed. Immediately as the rocket launched, things began to go wrong. The left solar panel malfunctioned. So did some of the electronics and high-frequency communications equipment. Even worse, Komarov radioed back that some of the controls weren't allowing him to steer properly. And it appeared the cabin pressure was leaking. Komarov soon lost contact with ground control while in orbit. He fought the broken controls to keep the ship properly oriented to the sun for five hours straight. After seeing how many problems Komarov was having, the second Soyuz launch was scrubbed. Soviet mission control tried to get Komarov back on course by ordering him to use the ship's ion sensors to reorient the ship's trajectory. But those sensors didn't work either. After 19 orbits around the Earth, Komarov finally managed to get the ship properly oriented for re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. But as he began re-entry, the main parachute failed to deploy. Then, when the second chute opened, that one became tangled up with the first chute. After that, the Soyuz 1 turned into a fireball and crashed into the Earth's surface. Although the official transcript the Soviets released of Komarov's final radio broadcast showed the cosmonaut remained calm and professional as the ship came down. A U.S. listening post outside Istanbul later reported that Komarov's final radio transmission was enraged and frantic. He angrily cursed the space program in the name of Leonid Brezhnev as he hurtled to his death. Inside the shattered remains of the Soyuz 1 capsule, Vladimir Komarov's body had completely melted from the heat of re-entry. All that was left of him was a charred hunk of flesh that was no longer identifiable as anything human. Komarov was given an official state funeral in Moscow. His ashes were interned in the necropolis in Red Square, and he was posthumously made a hero of the Soviet Union. On April 25, 1968, more than 10,000 people attended a memorial service at the crash site. Following the disaster, Yuri Gagarin was furious. He began openly defying Soviet leaders and told anyone who would listen how he and Komarov had tried warning everyone the Soyuz mission was doomed from the start. He demanded to speak face-to-face -to, -face to Brezhnev and tell him how he was responsible for Komarov's death. One unconfirmed story even claims that Gagarin got his chance and threw a drink into Brezhnev's face at a party. Although Gargarin wanted to one day go to space again, the Soviet Union was never going to let that happen. They would never take a chance for anything bad to happen to their national hero. But something did happen anyway. In 1968, Gargarin was killed in a jet plane crash during a training mission. After Gargarin's death, numerous rumors about what really happened sprung up. Some of those stories said that Gargarin and flight instructor Vladimir Seryalgin who also died in the crash, were drunk and joyriding around while they crashed after trying to avoid hitting a bird. Other, darker stories suggested that the Soviet leadership finally had enough with Gargarin's public outbursts and arranged to have him killed. In 2013, former cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, who was supposed to be the third man on the Soyuz 2, gave an interview in which he said the real reason Gargarin's plane crashed was because another jet flew too close to Gargarin's plane, forcing it into a tailspin. But Leonev wouldn't give further details, and never revealed the name of the other pilot. But that wasn't the end of the bad luck for the Soviet space program. 
1971, the crew of the Soyuz 11, Georgi, Dobrovolsky, Vladislav, Balkov, and Viktor Patsayev, all died after a vent in the ship blew out in orbit, depressurizing the cabin. The ship returned to Earth normally, but when the capsule was opened, the ground crew was shocked to discover that all three men had suffocated to death. These are the only officially recognized deaths of Soviet cosmonauts. But all the way back as early as the late 1950s, there were rumors that several other Soviet cosmonauts died in space. Only these deaths were considered so politically embarrassing that the communist leadership decided to sweep them under the rug. I previously mentioned some of the photographs of the Soviet cosmonauts were quite literally airbrushed out of the picture. Historian James Oberg was the first to point out there were multiple versions published of a famous photograph of a group of men called the Sochi Six. These were the top six candidates chosen from the original 20 cosmonauts. This photo was taken just a few weeks after Yuri Gagarin's successful space flight. In some of these versions, there's an extra man visible who is not in the originally published versions. In some versions of the photos, there's a rose bush in place in the man. In others, there's a set of stairs. A British historian named Rex Hall discovered that five cosmonauts were airbrushed out of a photo of 16 and replaced with shrubbery and other objects. One of these men, who was removed, was Valentin Bondarenko. Another was a man named Grigory Nelyubov, who was one of the original 20 cosmonauts. Nelyubov was reportedly hot-headed, and the project administrators didn't like him very much. But the man's talent was recognized, and he remained in the program. That is, until one day in 1963, when he and two other cosmonauts got drunk during a weekend trip away from Star City, and managed to get into an argument with a couple of security officers who wanted to see their identification. The two other cosmonauts apologized and were sent on their way, but Nelyubov doubled down and refused to apologize because of his high position in the cosmonaut program. When word got back to the head of the space program how these three men had publicly embarrassed them, all three of them were kicked out. Nelyubov reportedly spent the rest of his life sinking into a state of drunken depression, in which he kept telling anyone who would listen he had once been a cosmonaut, although by then all records of him being in the program had been expunged. This eventually led to Nelyubov stepping in front of a train during a snowstorm and killing himself. In December 1959, an alleged high-ranking Czechoslovakian member of the Communist Party leaked information about several failed Soviet space missions. This unnamed man gave the names of the cosmonauts that allegedly lost their lives in a series of fatal accidents. They were Alexei Ledovsky, Andrei Mitkov, Sergei Shiborin, and Maria Gromova. The fact that a woman's name was on this list might actually relate to a series of disturbing recordings made by a pair of Italian brothers in the late 1950s and early 1960s. These brothers were named Achille and Giovanni Giudica Cordiglia. And back in the 1950s and 60s, they lived in the city of Turin, where surplus war equipment was being sold by the kilogram. Over the years, the brothers began picking up broken radio receivers and fixing them up in order to listen in on Soviet space transmissions. They claimed to have overheard the very first faint beeping sounds coming from the Sputnik 1. But that's not all they claimed to have heard either. As time went on, the brothers continued tinkering with their radio equipment and even built a large antenna on the roof of their parents' apartment building, eventually moving their listening post to a former World War II bunker on the edge of town. They managed to pick up signals from the Sputnik 1, 2, as well as the Explorer 1 satellite in 1958. 
Then on November 28, 1960, the brothers claimed to have intercepted a faint SOS distress signal being transmitted from a Soviet spacecraft that they said was drifting away from Earth's orbit into space. Officially in history by this point, the only living creatures that had been launched into space were animals, including the dog Laika. But the Judica Cordiglias brothers began claiming they had overheard several failed space launches during which the cosmonauts died. On one occasion, they recorded a human heartbeat being transmitted as biometric data. Later on, they picked up another recording where a voice can be heard pleading with mission control. Conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? The brothers' most infamous recording came a month later when they recorded what sounded like a female astronaut as she burned up on re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. The female voice can be heard saying, I feel hot. I will re-enter. Just before the audio cuts out. In the 1960s, Reader's Digest published an article about the brothers' recordings that was presented as fact. Although in subsequent years, many skeptics have pointed out a number of inconsistencies and other details that point to the brothers' recordings being a hoax. It's widely believed that at the time the brothers made their recordings, both the Soviet Union and the United States were still years away from having rockets with second-burn technology that would have allowed for a ship to actually escape Earth's orbit, as the brothers suggested. Another issue that historian James Oberg has pointed out is that the antenna the brothers erected was meant for land-based radio transmission. It wasn't even designed to pick up signals from space. On top of that, some people who have listened to the recordings of the supposed female Russian cosmonaut have said the woman's accent sounds off. And the actual phrasing she uses is full of grammatical errors and doesn't mesh with the technical jargon a trained Soviet military pilot would use. Some people have suggested the voice might have actually belonged to the Judica Cordiglia brother's sister, who was known to be learning Russian at the time. Even though it seems extremely possible the Judica Cordiglia brothers' recordings were fake, let's face it, as far as conspiracy theories go, the idea that the Soviet Union would have attempted to hide the fact that some of their cosmonauts died doesn't seem too outlandish. The USSR always took the hard line that they were the most technologically advanced superpower in the world, and any suggestion otherwise was made out of either spite or jealousy by other nations. And yet, we know for a fact the Soviets would often take steps to hide embarrassing information, such as the death of Valentin Bondarenko. At the same time, it also seems extremely likely that if the US intelligence had ever learned that the Soviets had made such costly and embarrassing mistakes, during the Cold War, they would have jumped at the chance to rub their communist noses in it and leak these mistakes to the public. But that didn't always happen either. Just six months before Yuri Gagarin's first flight into space, news reports came out of Moscow that a high-ranking Soviet military commander, Rocket Command Marshal Mitrofan Nadalin, died in a plane crash. But the CIA was unable to confirm any details of this mysterious plane crash, and also began to hear other, more disturbing rumors as well. It turns out that Mitrofan was in charge of testing a new Soviet ballistic missile, the R-16, and that he had pushed for such an unrealistic deadline many corners were cut, and a number of safety protocols were ignored. On the day the rocket was supposed to be tested, the missile failed to launch. He and a large group of observers left the underground shelter, and were immediately killed when the missile unexpectedly exploded. It's estimated that as many as 150 military personnel and civilian scientists, including Mitrovan, died in the blast. 
It wasn't until the early 1990s that the entire scope of the accident was revealed publicly. As for the story of the lost cosmonauts, one possible explanation comes from a launch we do know occurred in 1961. Only this mission didn't contain anyone human. Instead, it carried a realistic-looking dummy the mission administrators called Ivan Ivanovich. This was pretty much the same as the Americans naming him John Doe. In fact, Ivan was so realistic they actually wrote the word dummy across his forehead just so he wasn't mistaken for the real thing. Ivan Ivanovich was launched into space along with a group of dogs, guinea pigs, mice, and reptiles, as well as an audio recording to test the ship's radio system. But wisely, instead of a recording of a human voice from Ivan Ivanovich's spacecraft, which would have been decidedly creepy, the Soviets instead chose to broadcast a recording of a choir, which I guess would also be kind of creepy if you heard it coming out of a spaceship that was supposed to have no humans on board. One other story some people who believe in the lost cosmonaut theory point to is that of Vladimir Ilyushin, a man who it's claimed was actually the first person in space, not Yuri Gagarin. On the surface, Ilyushin does appear to be a likely candidate to be the first man chosen to go into space. He was the son of a famous Soviet aircraft designer, a decorated test pilot, a well-regarded rugby player, and a hero of the Soviet Union with numerous ties to the Communist Party leadership. He was even friends with Khrushchev himself. The rumors about Ilyushin being the first man in space began two days before Yuri Gagarin's flight. On April 12, 1961, Denis Ogden, the Moscow correspondent for communist newspaper The Daily Worker, published an article claiming that a Russian cosmonaut orbited the Earth three times in a rocket named the Rosoya. A French journalist picked up the story and further embellished it. He claimed to have learned that the pilot was Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Ilyushin. One story claims that Ilyushin suffered some sort of mental breakdown in orbit, and that the Soviets attempted to conceal that it ever happened. A later version of the story claimed that Yuri Gagarin was driven out to the site where Ilyushin's ship came down, and was used as a cover by claiming he was the real first cosmonaut. A 1999 documentary titled The Cosmonaut Cover-Up took the position that Ilyushin's rocket crashed in a remote region in China, and that Ilyushin was too badly injured for the Soviet Union to claim the mission was a success. One curious detail that adds some weight to this story is that on April 12, 1961, just two days before Gagarin's flight, the story broke that Ilyushin was involved in a serious car wreck and was convalescing in a private Chinese hospital. A year later, Ilyushin was spotted in Moscow walking with a cane. The problem with the story is there appears to be no corroborating records proving that Ilyushin was ever part of the cosmonaut training program, which, as we've learned, isn't 100% proof of anything considering the Soviets' penchant for sweeping things under the rug. At the same time, though, there aren't any U.S. intelligence records either of there ever being another rocket launch before Yuri Gagarin's flight. There were several CIA tracking stations that likely would have picked up radar telemetry of a rocket flight, but no such record has ever been released. One rather notable person who did later claim that Ilyushin was the real first man in space was none other than Sergei Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev's son. Besides that, just before his death in 2010, journalists asked Vladimir Ilyushin if he really was the first man in space. In true Soviet fashion, Ilyushin refused to confirm or deny anything. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. 
I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Tucker, Joe, and Steve for signing up and helping support the show. I deeply appreciate it. Just as I deeply appreciate all my other supporters. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show that won't cost anything is to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can really help us combat the magical algorithm demons each time you give us a 5-star rating and review. Currently, you can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and the continuing drama that is Twitter. Follow us along in any of those places, or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.